a question for you. What are you thirsty for in life? Really? What do you long for deep down in your soul? Think about that for a minute. As we continue our study in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, our sermon text today is Isaiah chapter 55, which is a compelling invitation to come to God to receive that which was accomplished by God's suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. And as I've studied this text, it seems to me that this compelling invitation has five parts. As we consider these five parts, my prayer is that if you're here and you are not a Christian, that you will come to God for the salvation and the satisfaction of your soul. And my prayer for you, if you are a Christian, is that you will keep coming to God and never stop coming to God for the satisfaction of your soul. Christian, as we talk through Isaiah 55, don't deprive yourself of hearing this text as if it only applies to non-Christians who need to come to God through Christ for the first time. Isaiah 55 is how Christians apply the gospel of Jesus to their life every time we feel the deep thirst within our soul. So please open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 55. I I want everybody to get a Bible. If you didn't bring one, that's okay. We provided a black one there at your feet. 615 in that black Bible. Isaiah 55. Please get that out. David has already read that for us and done a great job doing so. I'm not going to read it again all in one shot like he did, but I'm going to read it as we go through these five different parts. I want you to notice something from the very beginning, and this is key to this entire text. Notice that our text begins with a premise. Our text begins with this premise. God knows that we're thirsty. Notice verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. Notice verse 2. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? God knows that we're hungry and thirsty at a soul level that goes far beyond our stomachs, which mine is hungry and thirsty and all the time. 
but so are our souls. We have an insatiable appetite for soul-level things. The question is, what are those soul-level things that we as humans and you individually are hungry and thirsty for? Since the Garden of Eden, when everything was just as it was supposed to be, all of the sinful sons and daughters of Adam and Eve have been living in exile outside the garden, longing for what we lost inside the garden because we thought that our way was better than God's way. Ever since that garden, we've been, we've been, as it were, peering back into the garden, deeply longing for what we lost because of our sin. We're thirsty for peace with our Creator, God. We're hungry for the identity and purpose that we had in the garden. We have a deep desire for eternal life that we lost. Where we know when we lay our head on our pillow at night that our soul is safe and secure. Outside the garden? We've lost it. Every human being feels these deep soul longings in one form or another. And every one of us are searching to satisfy those longings in a lot of different ways. So the way that you search to satisfy those deep longings of your soul might be different than Elisa, might be different than Jimmy, might be different than me. But we're all thirsty for something. And we're all trying to quench the hunger of our soul. So here's what we do. We try to satisfy our thirst for peace with God by hiding. Hiding from the reality that our soul is not right with God and we hide from it in the bushes of entertainment and distraction. And and we, we try to cover our shame with the fig leaves of religion and morality. I'm a good person. But our fig leaves are nothing more than a facade. They don't satisfy. We try to satisfy our thirst for the identity that we once had by emphasizing our physical appearance or by feeling significant based on what others think about me. We try to satisfy our thirst for purpose in life, meaning and significance in life, by giving ourselves to success at work. See, I'm valuable. I'm good at X. 
I've achieved Y. We try to satisfy our thirst for eternal life by investing in everything we can to stay healthy because we're scared to death to die. But God knows something that we don't know. God knows that those deep soul thirsts can only be satisfied in his presence and in a relationship with him. That brings us to number two. Isaiah 55 not only begins with a premise, but number two, Isaiah 55 has an invitation. In verse one and two, Notice that God invites us to come. Just as God knows you're thirsty, God invites you to come. He invites you to come to Him for the satisfaction of your soul. So read verse 1 and 2. Isaiah 55. This is God's word to us. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God's invitation to us is more like an encouragement. He didn't simply say, you can come if you want to. This, this is a, an encouragement where, where God seems to repeat himself enthusiastically. There are 12 imperatives in six verses. Look, just look at this part of Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 6. Listen to God. And and this is not with a stern, angry, judgmental condemnation. This This is enthusiasm. This is with open arms. This is the heart of God. Look at these verbs. Come, come, buy, eat, come, buy, listen, eat, incline your ear. Come, hear my word, seek, call. (laughs) Can you hear God's heart? Can you see God's grace toward you, sinner, outside the garden? By your own foolishness? (sighs) Notice that God's invitation is both positive and negative. In verse 1, we see that God says, Come, who? Everyone. 
everyone who's thirsty. Next week, he's going to describe to us who everyone is. Right now, it's plenty. How many of you are in everyone? There you go. How many of you just don't like to raise your hands? Okay, there you go. I get it. I hate to do that too. God's invitation is to everyone, and it's a positive invitation. He says, listen, it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you've done, and it doesn't matter what you have. Whether you're poor, you don't have any money. Come. And what God tells us by this positive invitation is this, that the most valuable things in life, the the things that you need the most and desire the most deep down in the soul cannot be purchased or earned. They can only be received freely from the hand of God. That is against our human nature. And frankly, that flies directly in the face of independent Western American culture. The most valuable things you deeply desire and need cannot be purchased and cannot be earned. They can only be received humbly and freely from the hand of your creator God. This invitation is positive. It's also negative. Look there in verse 2. God says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? He says, why are you, why are you spending everything you have trying to satisfy your soul? Why are you giving every ounce of your effort, working day and night, burning the candle at both ends, for something that ultimately will not satisfy. You're wasting your time. Come to me. And I will give it to you freely. God knows that every alternative will ultimately be unsatisfying. No matter how much you find your identity or your success or your value, In anything else, it will ultimately leave you hungry. That leads us to number three. We saw the premise. We saw the invitation. God knows that we're thirsty. God has invited us to come. And verse 2b through 5 Now the promise. God promises us satisfaction. Deep soul level satisfaction. The promise, verse 2 through 5. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
Doesn't that sound good to you? Does it sound good to you that almighty creator, redeemer God says, come to me and here's what I promise you. I promise you that your soul will live forever. I promise you that I will secure you, key word, secure you in an everlasting covenant back into my kingdom under my king, the greater king, David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every son of Adam and daughter of Eve who feels their sin wants that security and peace with God. And God promises that he will give it to us freely. He says, come to me. I won't just give you bread and water like you deserve as prisoners. What does God say there in verse, at the end of of verse one? Come, buy wine and milk without money. And so then what does he promise at the end of verse two? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The kinds of things that God gives are not the scraps, but the best of the best. Read any portion of the Bible that has to do with what we have to look forward to, and you're always going to hear it with imagery of food and wine at a feast. Why? Because God knows what pushes our buttons and whets our appetite. And God says what you have to look forward to is not light, cloud, ethereal, fluffy stuff. What you have to look forward to are the riches of life that will satisfy your soul deep down. That's God's promise to us. And God promises that we'll be restored back into his kingdom. We we got banished from his kingdom because we were rebels against his throne. We thought our way was better than his way. We said, we don't want to follow your law. So we threw off the lordship and kingship of God and declared ourselves king of our own kingdom. And every son of Adam and daughter of Eve have been doing it ever since, haven't we? God says, I'll restore you back into my kingdom and I will do it under my greater Davidic king. The kingdom of God under King Jesus is not just national biological Israel. But look there in verse 5. It's going to include a nation that you don't even know about. People from all over the face of the earth. Like, for example, Winchester, Virginia. Maybe even Front Royal. I don't know. Maybe. It's going to include people. And what are these people going to do when they hear? Wait. When they hear that God has made a way for them to be restored into his kingdom again. Look at verse 5. When they hear that good news, what do they do? They run to Jesus. 
They run to King Jesus when they hear about this gospel. And this whole thing is how God has designed his glory and his name to be spread and shine uh, like gold and silver across the earth. Oh. I guess it'd be good to stop right here and ask you the question, have you ever felt your need for Christ? And have you ever run to Jesus? Because if you will, then in the arms of Jesus, you will find 10,000 charms. I will arise and come to Jesus. Starts with a premise. God invites us to come. God promises us satisfaction. And then verse four. Uh, pardon me. Number four. Verses six and seven. Number four. Verse six and seven. This fourth part is very important. God explains to us the requirement. Free? Yes, absolutely. Can't work for it. Can't pay enough for it. Deeply needed. But there's a requirement. Requirement's not money. It's not work. But what is the requirement? God requires two things. Clearly displayed here in verse 6 and 7. God requires repentance and faith. Or if you want to flip those around, it would probably actually follow this text better to say faith and repentance And you know what? It doesn't matter what order. Some people get theologically hung up on whether repentance comes first or faith comes first. It doesn't matter because they're two sides of one coin. Flip the coin, friends. Heads or tails, they're both required. Repentance and faith is the response that God requires. Let's let's read this. And while we do, let's just remember something. Isaiah chapter 53, God did everything necessary to save his people from sin and to restore them back into, at that time, Jerusalem and the ultimate fulfillment back into the kingdom of God. God did everything necessary. A response is required. God is sovereign over salvation. But man is responsible to repent and believe. Look at verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord. Imperative. Command. You do this or it won't be done. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. We must come and seek the Lord to receive what the suffering servant 
has accomplished in Isaiah 53. You must repent and believe. No one can do that for you. It doesn't just automatically happen to you without you knowing it. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's not like I get it because I'm attached to the right family or the right church. You must respond to this gospel in these two ways. Believe and repent, repent and believe. And it's not just Isaiah 55 that says that, but Jesus said this. When Jesus came on the scene, the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, uh, Jesus came into Galilee. This is the very beginning. It's Mark 1, so it's like the beginning of everything that Jesus did, right? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says we have to respond. Guess what? Jesus' disciples say we have to respond. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, like one of the very first sermons ever preached in public by the church of Jesus Christ, Peter stands up, preaches to a massive amounts of people, like three, five, eight thousand people, who knows? Peter says, Jesus was sent from God. You killed him. You rejected him. Peter explains the gospel. And then the crowd reacts this way. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Don't worry about it. You don't need to do anything. God does everything. You don't have to do anything to be saved. That's not what he said. Listen, God does everything. But you still have to respond to it. And even your response is under the sovereign decree of Almighty God. So Peter says to them, the same thing that he learned from his Lord, Jesus Christ. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know why I emphasize this? Because there are so many people who come to church, who come to church, who come to church and never come to Christ. There are so many people who are born and reared in a Christian home who never become Christians because they never repent and believe. Christianity cannot be your parents' religion. It must be yours too. And that comes by repenting and believing. So why do I say repent and believe? Because here in verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he is near. Seeking the Lord is listening to what he just said and then saying, I want that. God says, come to me and I'll give you everything that you ever needed and desired for your soul. I'll give you life and restore you to my kingdom. I believe that. I'm coming. 
I'm going to run to Jesus to find the 10,000 charms. And, and let me be clear, the 10,000 charms is, is not a Toyota Land Rover and a nice house. The 10,000 charms are for your soul. All right? Okay, good. But then it's, it's also repentance. Because look at verse 7. So just like we're to seek the Lord and call on him, what does that mean, verse 7? That means turning away. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that the Lord can have compassion on him. Can you kind of see the imagery here of the garden where we in the garden through, through Daddy Adam and Mama Eve, and we do it all ourselves every day, we know it, we all think our way is best, or at least man's collective wisdom is how it should be. And we reject God's ways. So God says, my invitation is to come, and to come means you're going to have to turn away from your own ways and your own thoughts. Turn around and come back to me. Return to the Lord. That's repentance and faith. And what's promised? Listen, I can remember vividly when I was a kid and used to do things wrong. I I don't do anything wrong anymore. Listen, every time I do something wrong, I don't want to confess it to my wife or to my kids or to my fellow elder. I don't want to do, I don't want to confess it. Why? Because I'm afraid of what's going to happen. I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm going to get the sledgehammer. I'm afraid I'm going to get judgment. It's no wonder that people are scared to death to turn back to God, who they know they've, they've sinned against. They have a wrong view of God, that God is this cosmic ogre who's just ready to squash sinners like a bug. What do sinners get when they turn around and come back to God. What do they get? Verse 7. He will have compassion on them. And he will abundantly pardon. Don't overlook that word abundantly. You know why he abundantly pardons? Because we abundantly sin. gospel's so good. Remember, this is not just first time non-Christians becoming Christians. Christian, this is for you every day of your life. You're thirsty. God knows you're thirsty. God invites you to come to him instead of going everywhere else to find the deep needs of your soul. God promises you satisfaction if and when you come to him. And God requires that you turn away from those things and trust him. 
Remember, that's the whole theme of Isaiah in a nutshell, in my opinion. God, over and over and over again, says this, Trust me, I am the Lord your God. So look here in in verse 6 and 7, and briefly notice about these requirements of repentance and faith. This really answers the question, when do we come? I can remember as a kid, uh, especially a teenager, just kind of wanting to experiment and experience a bunch of things and thinking that I, after I experiment, after I experience, then I'll come. Now, here's, here's what the Bible says. Seek the Lord when? While he may be found. Call upon him when? While he is near. So, to the Israelis... Back then and there, God came near through the preaching of Isaiah, and God came near through the promise of a future Messiah. And God says, trust me, seek me through the preaching that you're hearing, through the promises that I make for us today. God came near in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, like God was with us in flesh. He, he lived. He died the death that we should have died. He, he buried our sins in the grave, and then he rose victoriously over them so that we could have life and forgiveness, all the stuff that we lost in the garden. And now he lives forever, and guess what? He's coming again to set up his kingdom on earth and restore the garden and shalom, all the joy and the peace and everything that we lost. God came near, and God can be found, and we are required to respond. When? Well, Hebrews 3 says today. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit said in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I think that's interesting. Because he doesn't say, don't delay. He tells us what happens when he, when we delay. Don't harden your heart. Every day you delay, your heart gets a little bit more hardened. Today, if you will hear his voice, and everyone in this room is hearing the voice of God through his text. I'm not the voice of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. So today you have the opportunity to respond tomorrow. It's not guaranteed. And do it while he is near. So again, it'd be a good time to ask, have you responded? Have you come to Jesus? You can today. And then also this this fourth part, the requirement of repentance and faith, it answers how. How do we come? So God gives us this beautiful, compelling, open invitation. Come and I will satisfy the deep longings of your soul. That's a great metaphor, great imagery, but what does that actually mean? Like, how do you come? Well, look at the verbs. Seek. Call forsake, return. 
And all this begins in verse 2 and 3. Look back up there. All this begins in verse 2 and 3 when we incline our ear and hear the promises of God, which is the gospel of Jesus. Namely, that chapter 53, my suffering servant was made sin for you so that you could be made right and righteous through him. God requires repentance and faith. Friend, all you have to do is turn around. Turn away from sin. Turn back to God. And He will secure you in a covenant. I know you're afraid to do that. You're afraid to give up control. You're afraid that you're going to get the hammer instead of mercy. So, Isaiah and God give three reasons Three assurances of why you ought to do this. Why should sinners forsake their way and return to the Lord? Reason number one, verse eight and nine. Because God's ways are infinitely higher than your ways. Specifically, God's willingness to pardon sinners is significantly infinitely higher than your willingness to forgive those who sinned against you. Read verse 8 and 9. Right after he says, let the wicked turn away because I will abundantly pardon them, he says four. Here's why. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's grace is infinitely more compassionate and ready to forgive than ours. God's thoughts and ways about how we should live are infinitely higher and better than ours. And God's way to restore us back to the way it was supposed to be is infinitely better than however humanity can come up with. Forsake your ways, friends. Return to the Lord. Reason number two, verse 10 and 11. For, you see in the ESV, for, verse 8, for, verse 10, for, verse 12, for, three reasons. Because, because, because. Reason number two, not only does God's ways, are they infinitely higher than your ways, but because God's word always accomplishes his will. Just like the rain and the snow come down from heaven, verse 10, and they don't return, but they stay there. And what do they do? They water the earth, they make it bring forth and sprout, and it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. It's the whole thing from beginning to end. God does that through rain. God says that he accomplishes his purposes and his will through his word, which is like rain that comes down and bears fruit. From beginning to end, 
God's gospel. The truth that he's God, you're not, you're a sinner and you need a savior. And he sent Jesus to be the savior for your sin. And the response is to repent and believe that gospel will finish it beginning to end. God's word always accomplishes his will. Respond to it. Reason number three, verse 12 and 13. What is God's will? If God's ways are infinitely higher, God's word always accomplishes his will. What is God's will? It's to restore shalom by reversing the curse through Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. That's God's will. Look at verse 12 and 13. The end of all of this. God invites us to come. And what's the end of it? Those who come are going to go out with joy. And be led forth in peace. What does that sound like? That sounds like what we had before we lost it with our sin. The mountains and the hills before you, they're going to break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. And instead of the thorns, verse 13, which came as a result of sin, we're going to have cypresses. Instead of briars, which came because of the fall of man, we're going to have myrtles. And through this, restoration of shalom by reversing the curse. The curse is now reversed through the suffering servant of chapter 53. By all this, the Lord is going to make a name for himself. God says, that's how I want to be known as great. I want to be known as a Gracious God to sinners. Thirst for shalom. Invitation to come. Promise of satisfaction. Requirement of repentance and faith. And assurance. Assurance of grace. That's number five. God assures us of grace with these three reasons because his ways namely pardoning sinners is infinitely higher than ours his word always accomplishes his purpose and his will is to restore shalom by reversing the curse through christ listen if you're not a christian god has given you this invitation and you have heard it today don't harden your heart Forsake your ways. Return to the Lord. You'll get nothing but grace. Abundantly. Okay, now, for those of you who are Christians, probably the majority of people in the room, for those of you who are Christians, this is how you live every single day. Because we feel the longing in our heart for peace with God every time we feel the shame of our sin, what do we do? We don't hide, cover, and point and blame anymore. What do we do? We come. 
Every time we feel tempted to find our identity in our appearance or whatever others think of us, what do we do? We come to God because he will give us satisfaction in our identity if we'll just turn away from our ways and go his ways. When we feel the pressure to demonstrate our greatness and glory by success, when you feel the fear of death, God says, come to me, all of those of you who have deep soul longings. I promise you I will satisfy your soul. You need to turn away from your own ways of figuring this out. Follow my word, my ways. And I promise you, I assure you, that you'll receive grace. good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for this gospel, the gospel that must be responded to with repentance and faith. And I pray that you would cause every one of us to respond by turning away from our sin and our ways and our thoughts and turning to you because your ways, your thoughts, your grace is infinitely better more successful to produce what we want than our own. God, I pray that if there are non-Christians here, that, that you would open their eyes to this truth. And I pray for every Christian, brother and sister here, that we would see this is every day for us. It's a life of repenting and believing. I thank you for the gospel that that works and bears fruit for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.